this is very much a ballon d'essai. It's, in other words, a trial balloon. And what I'm going to do is give you a, a, a working hypothesis about healthcare in Ireland. And I'll give you some evidence, but the evidence is only partial uh, about it at the moment. I, I'll also kind of make a comment in a moment about the title. The hypothesis that I'm offering is really the focus of healthcare spending and policy in independent Ireland for most, if not all, of the 20th century was on hospitals. And I'm arguing then, and I'm using kind of a social science model, that Irish healthcare is path-dependent. In other words, one or two events or decisions in the past uh, have continued to drive Irish healthcare in a particular direction for reasons that many of the people who are engaged in contemporary policy have long forgotten. And so what, uh, the two key forces that I'm looking at in this paper are one, Catholic social teaching and the principle of subsidiarity, and secondly, the hospital sweepstake. Uh, I've probably been very unfair by uh, highlighting the hospital sweepstake in the, in, the, in, the, in the title of the paper, but it was too good an opportunity to miss. Uh, I would also say that I've decided, having written the paper, that the, we have neither a hospital system nor a health system. Uh, but um, you know, there, there, there's there's something there. But I don't think the word I don't think it, the word system is merited for either hospitals or health or the health health structure as such. Uh, the argument I'm really making in this paper is that the history of medicine matters, and it matters not simply for intellectual reasons. It matters because understanding the history of the Irish health system helps policymakers to comprehend issues that confront them today. And I'm also beginning with a number of qualifications. First of all, my focus is on acute hospitals, not on long-term institutional care for mentally handicapped, uh, mentally ill, geriatric, county homes, etc. And secondly, as I said, this is a preliminary paper. There's known unknowns, and more to the point, there's unknown unknowns in this that I will hopefully address at some stage in the future. The paper was prompted really by two items. One stage last year, I was revisiting material relating to health policy in 1960s Ireland and the run-up to the 1970 Health Act, which is the legislation that really determined Irish uh, health, health services for the remainder of the 20th century and still influences today. And as part of that, I reread the Fitzgerald Report, uh, which was setting out a programme of reform for the hospital sector. It was, it was published in 1968. Fitzgerald showed that in the mid-1960s, and this is one of the tables on, on your handout, Ireland, and they're both from Fitzgerald, Ireland had over 20,000 acute hospital beds, and this amounted to 7.2 beds per thousand of population, a figure exceeded only by, Switzerland, by Sweden and Luxembourg, and significantly higher than England and Wales, 4.3, Northern Ireland, 5.5, or the United States, which I would have assumed would have been king of the hospitals, at, at 4.9. Secondly, in 1964, and that's not on the table, the rate of hospital admissions in the country was 100 per thousand. In other words, one in ten in the population was admitted to hospital in a year. Presumably some people were admitted more than once. And this contrasted, this was contrasted with 60 per thousand. In other words, it went from 6, uh, from 6, uh, from 6 to 10 percent of the population in little more than 10 years, 1951 to 1964. Uh, so that is a huge explosion in hospital admissions. Uh, Minister for Health Erskine Childers reminded to the inaugural meeting of the National Health Council of Ireland in February 1971 that Ireland had the highest proportion of hospital beds to population in Western Europe. So this is a country where lots of people are going to hospital, where there are lots of hospital beds, and also, despite the high rate of admissions, the patients are staying a very long time in the hospitals. The average stay in 1960 was 20 days, and I'm excluding long-stay hospitals. These are in the acute hospitals. And the hospitals treated fewer patients annually per hospital bed than any other country any other country in Europe that I've found at the moment. I'll do more work on that. You only got an average of 16 patients per bed into an acute hospital in a year. 19 in Sweden, 22 in England and Wales, 30 in the United States. So it suggests lots of hospital beds, lots of people going to hospital, and they're staying a long time there. Um, some of the statistics for stay, and it's on one of the tables, really bringing you back to a bygone era. The average patient admitted to the National Maternity Hospital in Hollis Street, for example, stayed there for about no, almost nine days. If they went to Waterford, they stayed 13 days. Medical patients in the county hospital in Wexford stayed an average of 23 days. Those in Castle Bar, only nine days. Part of the answer lies in occupancy rates. Castle Bar had an occupancy rate of 90%, which was comparable to the Dublin Voluntary Hospitals. Vincent's, I haven't given you that, is about 90% of the time. 
In Wexford, despite the fact that they're staying forever in the place, the occupancy rate is under 70%. A study of hospital treatment for a variety of standard illnesses and procedures in the early 1970s showed a very wide variety in the length of hospital stay between different hospitals. You could be there for double the length of time, getting the same procedure, you can be there for double the length of time in Hospital A compared with Hospital B. The variation is much wider than in Scotland, and the Irish patients, regardless of what they had, stayed longer than their Scottish equivalent for any comparable procedure. And these are fairly standard procedures, you're not looking at anything exotic. In a comment on that particular report, the Medical Socio Research Council concluded that patients increased to fill the available hospital beds, and that there is no doubt that this is absolutely central to the whole thing. There are lots of beds, and you get patients uh, to occupy them. The other characteristic of the Irish hospitals by the mid-1960s is that they tend to be small, much smaller than comparable hospitals, uh, acute hospitals, and again, I'm talking all the time about acute hospitals, uh, comparable hospitals in other developed countries. A report in 1970 described the Irish hospital system as one of a large number of small institutions scattered throughout the country. This is, anything, if anything, an understatement. At the time, there were 169 hospitals providing acute medical, surgical, and mater- medical, surgical, and maternity services. Only three hospitals, all in Dublin, had more than 300 beds. So, I'm, the question I'm going to look at in this paper is: Why such a high ratio of hospital beds per population? Why such long stays? Why so many hospitals? There are several factors. First, let's recognise that the 20th century is the age of the hospital. Significant expansion of hospital medicine. Christopher Lawrence has described the hospitals of the interwar years as cathedrals of medicine. You know, it's the place where medicine was revered, scientific practices are, are, are implemented. In Britain, the number of beds per thousand of population doubled between 1860 and 1940, doubled again by 1980. You get much greater use of surgery for all kinds of illnesses. You get the medicalisation of childbirth. You get increased use of x-rays, blood tests, blood transfusions, pathology, microbiology, and all kinds of other diagnostic services. You get increased specialisation in in medical expertise. You get the locating locating of that expertise in hospitals. You get the Listerian revolution, which means that hospitals are no longer very dangerous places, a source of disease. All these things bring treatments and patients into the hospital environment. But none of these factors are unique to Ireland. They're common throughout the developed world. Indeed, you might argue the development of specialist treatments and diagnostic services in Ireland lagged behind uh, other countries, yet there is a higher level of hospital beds and a higher rate of admissions and long-term hospital stays. Uh, So, why? My argument is that this is the medical marketplace. The medical marketplace directed medical care and patients towards hospitals to an even greater extent in Ireland than in, say, the UK or other developed countries for two reasons. First, the emergence of a soft stream of income via the Irish hospital sweepstake, which was directed at hospitals and only at hospitals. This is soft money targeted at one part of the medical sector, of the health sector. It funds the expansion of hospital beds. It subsidises the running costs of the voluntary hospitals. It doesn't force the rationalisation or closure of hospitals. Secondly, the focus on hospitals is consistent with and state support for hospitals is consistent with Catholic social teaching and the principle of subsidiarity. Basically, I'm sure you all know, but anyway, the subsidiarity principle sees the family as the primary provider of income and care, including medical care. The state should only step in when the family fails in its role. So providing health care for the poor via the dispensary system is perfectly acceptable. But by the mid-20th century, so equally acceptable to Catholic social teaching is the principle that the state should provide a significant subsidy to the cost of hospital treatment because hospitals are expensive places for all but the wealthiest. So it's perfectly acceptable to subsidise or to supplement subsidise the care of hospital treatment for the overwhelming majority of the population under Catholic social teaching, not to subsidise GP care for the same number of people. While the process I described starts in the late 1920s with the emergence of the Irish Hospital Sweepstake, the 1950s is much more critical to the story. The 1953 Health Act, which was passed by Fianna Fáil government, coming shortly after the collapse of the Mother and Child Scheme, has attracted much less attention from historians than the said Mother and Child Scheme. It's at least as important, if not more important, as a measure. It's very, very significant. It does bring about some changes in access to the traditional dispensary system. It abolishes the degrading red ticket. Every time 
you or your child was sick, you had to go to somebody who could dispense a ticket, and with this ticket you could then get treatment. The next time you needed treatment, you needed to get another ticket. It got rid of that particular legacy, the poor law, and what it did in its place, the local authority drew up a list of those who were eligible for free treatment, and the list was updated annually. Eligibility was not extended. In other words, those who got red tickets now got on on, 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 on the general medical list. Uh, and it covered approximately 30% of the population. But much more importantly, the 1953 Act gave the overwhelming majority of the population an entitlement to free or substantially subsidised hospital treatment. Those who were eligible under the 53 Act included everybody who paid social insurance. That's a large proportion of the wage-earning population. Those with an income level or valuation of farm below a certain threshold, so all those on smaller and middling-sized farms, those with small and middling-sized businesses, shopkeepers and so on like that, those on you know modest salaries, all were entitled to subsidised hospital treatment, as, of course, were all those who were entitled to dispensary, pre-dispensary treatment as well. Uh, by the mid-1950s, an estimated 85% of the population was therefore entitled to subsidised hospital treatment. The level of subsidy and the, cha- the charges imposed on patients could vary budget to budget. They're not, not a big deal, and the, you know, the income thresholds are raised and lowered and so on. Let's not get involved in that. Basically, however, 85% in the mid-1950s. By 1966, 90% of the population were eligible under the Health Act for subsidised hospital care. Um, If you were eligible for subsidised hospital care, you either got it free or you were charged. Uh, The middle-income group were supposed to be charged. That's 55 to 60% of the population were supposed to be charged. The charge was a maximum in the mid-1960s of 10 shillings a day. That's about 70 cents in today's and that covered all hospital treatment and your maintenance when you were in hospital. In practice, this was very much a maximum charge. The 1966 White Paper on Health estimated that in the previous year, the majority of those who were supposed to pay a charge, 60% of those who were supposed to pay a charge, paid not, were charged nothing at all, and only half of the remaining 40% were charged more than five shillings a day. That's 30 cent, 35 cent. Um, Non-payment by the middling income group, the group who was supposed to pay, was rife. In other words, a lot of people were sent a bill and didn't pay. Uh, At the time, the average cost of a week in the county hospital would have been £23. Uh, It would have been more if you'd gone to more the specialist hospitals, such as, would say, Vincent's the matter. The maximum charge was about 10% of the total cost of your hospital stay. The majority of the middle-income group didn't pay at all. Only about 20% of those paid. And the average payment was half of the maximum charge, so about 5% of a week's stay. The 1954 Act, as I said, provided free or subsidised hospital care for 85 to 90% of the population. VHI, Voluntary Health Insurance, introduced by the second inter-party government in 1955, was designed to cover the hospital treatment of the wealthiest 10 to 15%. In 1957, there were 25,000 subscribers. By 1966, that had gone up to tenfold, a quarter of a million, 250,000 subscribers. Like the 54 Act, VHI again only covered hospital treatment and diagnostics and only inpatient, not outpatient treatments. Though there appears to be some kind of a grey area about whether VHI would cover outpatient procedures such as x-rays. But anyway, basically it's hospital treatment covered by the insurance system again. This limited coverage again reflects the core principles in Irish healthcare that were common to both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. The 1966 White Paper, which reviewed historical and current health care provision, set the framework for, and also set the framework for future health care policy, restated the boundaries between the state and the private individual or the family very clearly. And I'm sorry, I should actually produce this. In a, this is the one PowerPoint slide I might have used. But anyway, let me read you the quote anyway. And this is a quote from the White Paper. In developing the services, this is the health services on the line summarised above, which don't concern us, the government did not accept the proposition 
that the state had a duty to provide unconditionally all medical, dental or other health services free of cost for everyone. In other words, they rule out the principle of free health care for all without regard to individual need or circumstance. And it goes on. Thus, general medical services, that's in other words, GP, that's what they call GP services, general medical services have remained available only to about 30% of the population. In other words, only 30% of the population are getting free GP services because it is considered that the expenses arising from attending a general practitioner are not normally an induced strain on families in the middle income group. In other words, people who are not in the, in the poorest 30% are expected to be able to afford to pay to visit the GP. On the other hand, eligibility for hospital and specialist services, which are likely to be much more costly, has been extended to a far wider group of the population. And in general, those outside the group statutorily entitled to the services can use them if they can show hardship. So they're more or less saying there's free or highly subsidised hospital care available to all, but a free GP service only for the poorest 30%. Very clear two-tier health service that way. So in the decades after independence, and most especially from 1953 onwards, we see a major extension of subsidised hospital treatment covering the overwhelming majority of the population. By contrast, apart from abolishing the red ticket, the scope of the dispensary medical service, which provided for the poorest 30%, remained largely unchanged from independence. Now, there's a separate project to be done on who's eligible for that because eligibility varies widely across Ireland and not necessarily in line with my impressions of average income. Why is it, for example, that 40% of the population uh, had, uh, had, a free, had free dispensary services in County Carlow and only 31% in County Offaly? The two counties are not necessarily that different. Anyway, in 1961, and I want to look at the, at the GMS service, the GP service, and particularly the dispensary service for a moment. In 1961, Dr. T.R.F. O'Higgins, who was Fine Gael's spokesman on health and former Minister for Health, the man who introduced the VHI, claimed that the average annual cost of medicine for patients treated by dispensary doctors amounted to only four to six shillings a year. That's 30 to 40 cent a year per patient treated under the, uh, under the general medical service by the, by the dispensary doctor. In the larger cities and towns, the dispensary did include a pharmacy and, and patients eligible for treatment could go to the pharmacy where they got dressings, medicine, free to those eligible for treatment. But if you lived in a smaller town or in the countryside, the patient had to rely on whatever medicine the dispensary doctor might carry, in, literally in his bag or keep in his dispensary. And it would appear that these doctors kept absolutely minimal stock. There was minimal provision for home nursing. Um, There were at this time 674 dispensary doctors, but only 171 public health nurses, roughly one public health nurse per four uh, doctors. Uh, And the public health nurse had to divide her time, and they were, I think, all women at this stage probably, between public health functions, the school health examinations, the immunisation clinics, the mother and child service, antenatal, neonatal, and more general nursing uh, for dispensary patients. So as you can imagine, very little time, very little resources given to providing uh, outpatient nursing care for dispensary patients. So it is no great surprise that when the dispensary doctor met somebody who was sick, the first thing they did in so many cases was call for the ambulance, in other words, ship them off to hospital. Because once the patient got to hospital, they got free nursing care, they got free medicine, they got free dressings, not to mention heat, running water and sanitary services. And this is at a time when running water uh, and, and sanitary services were not readily available in the countryside and indeed in some of the smaller towns either. Indeed, the whole structure and financial basis of the dispensary service encouraged a very high level of hospital admissions. And as for the the people who didn't qualify for free visits to the dispensary doctor and who couldn't afford the 
pay the cost of visiting a GP, they also tended to head for the hospital as well in many circumstances. By the 1960s, the notion of 10 shillings a day for being in hospital, food, heat, meds and x-rays provided was actually less than the cost of a GP visit, which was 15 shillings. It was only, it was, it, it was only, it was two-thirds the cost of a GP visit, which was approximately one euro. And as we've seen, the hospital charge was often waived or reduced or, or not paid at all. The daily hospital charge doesn't increase during the 60s at a time when inflation is rocketing and almost every other charge was rising and presumably GP visits were probably rising. Families not eligible for dispensary treatment were required to pay for outpatient visits to specialist and diagnostic services, but it was very cheap. Two and six months to see a specialist in a hospital outpatient, which is one-sixth the cost of visiting your GP, seven and sixpence for an X-ray, roughly half the cost of going to the GP. And it appears again that many people never paid that charge or had the charge waived because the total amount collected in the country in 1965 was only 48,000, and that wouldn't get you very far in terms of visits. So what I'm saying is regardless of whatever was wrong with you, regardless of whether you were a dispensary patient or middle class, the sensible thing to do was go into hospital and get yourself admitted there. All the services were free. Likewise, for VHI patients, VHI doesn't cover outpatient treatment or diagnostics, so the best thing to do was to book yourself in. It's no great surprise, therefore, that by the early 1960s, approximately 70% of, of public health, of health spending in, by the Exchequer went on hospitals. That does include long-stay hospitals, and I'll need to pull that out. Also worth noting that in the early 1960s, public expenditure in health in Ireland accounted for almost 3% of GNP, which was higher than in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and only fractionally lower than Germany and Denmark. Uh, I mean, practically the same as Germany and Denmark. Now, GNP per capita in Ireland is much lower than the comparator countries, and Ireland's a poorer country, but you cannot say that spending on health services was low as a percentage of GNP. It's, 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 It's well up, if not above, the European average. What it suggests is that while funding for GP, home care, drugs and other non-hospital services was low, funding for the hospital sector was not necessarily inadequate, though I'm going to need to do more work on this. Whether that money was well spent is very much another question. Tom Feeney notes that the Irish health system of the early 1960s was widely, widely considered to be unwieldy and inefficient, and I wouldn't disagree. And I want to go and look at hospital services, bearing in mind global trends towards expanding and expansion of hospital medicine, again asking what's different about Ireland. Hospitals everywhere have a complex history that is not always fully understood, and I would apologise, I suspect most of you know it, but I'm going to run back through some of the purposes of the hospital. Uh, my focus, again, I want to reiterate, is on the general hospital. I'm not dealing with mental, mental hospitals, fever hospitals, long-term uh, care for the elderly or anything like that. So, again, with apologies to the, those of you who know lots about the history of the hospital, let's go back and look to the 19th century and maybe a bit earlier. Most hospitals were founded as charitable organisations catering for the sick poor. Charity wasn't particularly disinterested. Um, Charitable hospitals were also means of saving souls and enhancing or protecting denominational interests and providing social laboratories for clinical training of medical professionals. This is very much the case in the Dublin Dublin Bondry Hospitals, such as St Vincent's Hospital, a hospital designed to provide medical care in a Catholic environment and career opportunities for Catholic medical students and doctors, or the Adelaide, which was a hospital that was designed for the Protestant community with a very similar scenario. Hospitals were were very much means of career enhancement for medical professionals. In the 19th century, affluent families in Dublin would never set foot in a Dublin city hospital unless they were attending for some charitable purpose or a meeting of the board. But they preferred to attend doctors whose merit and specialist knowledge was ostensibly recognised by the fact that they had a hospital appointment. In other words, they'd attend somebody who was uh, attached to the Adelaide St Vincent's, the Meath, though they wouldn't be seen live or dead in the Adelaide, said Adelaide Vincent's or the Meath. And with the growing emphasis in the 19th century on clinical training, hospitals offered case studies, patients that could be used to train the next generation of doctors. Anne Crowther and Marguerite Dupre claim that there is certainly a prima facie case for regarding the hospital and hence the bodies of the poor as the crucible for medical experiment. Now, interestingly, medical teaching was not permitted in poor law hospitals because the patients there were not voluntary subjects, so there was an even greater need to have the voluntary hospitals as the teaching hospitals. 
Clinical training was actually a lucrative source of revenue. Indeed, it was the only income that most doctors got for holding hospital appointments well into the uh, mid-20th century. The City of Dublin Hospital in Bagot Street, for example, was founded by doctors in order to provide clinical cases, and I assume that some of the clinical cases might actually have been uh, treated and might have, their health might have been improved by being clinical cases in the hospital, but the primary purpose of the hospital was actually to train, to tra- to train, to train doctors. Up to the 1970s, consultants in Dublin hospitals, such as the Adelaide or Vincent's, shared out the clinical fees paid to the hospital by the medical students. Indeed, that was about the only money that the doctors in those hospitals got for treating public patients. It's it's, it's a very strange relationship. As for the patients in the 19th century, they got food, shelter, nursing care, much cleaner and warmer conditions than they would get at home. In the 1880s, food accounted for half the spending in French hospitals, and I suppose being France, it still accounted for a quarter of expenditure on the eve of World War II. Some 19th century patients probably benefited from inpatient treatments, especially surgical, following the introduction of anaesthesia. But as I said, hospitals were dangerous places carrying strong risks of infection. So the more prosperous families who needed surgery, say their tonsils removed or their appendix removed, would have had it done either at home or in a small private nursing home where there was less danger of exposure to infection. And that continued well into the 20th century. Margaret Jeffries, Emeritus Professor of Medical Sociology, has a wonderful description of how she and her two sisters had their tonsils removed by the family doctor all on the same day, quote, in our dining room, temporarily transformed into an operating theatre. They used the dining room table, actually, for the operation. Um, don't know if it would have been the same to sit there for Sunday meals after that. Anyway, the risk of infection and death from hospital surgery falls rapidly thanks to the spread of the Listerian techniques for antisepsis. Hospitals become less dangerous places for the sick. You get sterile instruments, rubber gloves, sterile clothing, etc. And the 20th century, as we all know, brings a dramatic expansion in the range of surgical procedures and the emergence of medical specialisms, uh, x-rays, pathology labs, etc., I I now want to move the story post-1920, but I want to begin by flagging one aspect of the pre-1920 story that I need to look back on. I've asked myself, did the extension of access to workhouse hospitals in Ireland from the 1850s put forces in place that made the hospital a more important locus of medical care in Ireland than elsewhere? In other words, does my story of roots that go back before independence? I don't know. I need to check. There are some pointers to to suggest that that might be so. For example, in 1920, the reform of the poor law put into effect by the Dáil and Department of Local Government closed down workhouses and workhouse hospitals, replacing them with a county-based system. One hospital per county, one all-purpose county home for the chronically ill, etc. The reform was highly contentious. Um, hospitals were seen, firstly, as important employers in the community, sources of power and prestige for local doctors and local politicians. One man from County Limerick wrote to W.T. Cosgrave, who was Minister for Local Government, protesting that the relatives at his policy of moving from the workhouse hospital to the county hospital, and he said that the relatives of sick people now face long journeys if they wished to visit them in hospital. The relatives of the patients are not riders on motor cars. The jolly donkey cart or even Shank's mare are far more likely to be their mode of progression. In Leitrim, the battle to secure the new county hospital was especially heated as Carrick and Shannon, Mohill and Manor Hamilton, who was the winner, battled it out. The decision prompted protests from local Sinn Féiners, sermons against hospital amalgamation from the pulpit, eh, and many, many other diatribes. Um, given these eh, disputes, it's not surprising that some counties defied instructions from Dublin and decided to retain district hospitals in order to avoid similar scenes. Another cause of contention was who would run the new hospital, religious sisters or lay staff. Your battles over selection of matrons particularly heated, and on at least one occasion the appointment of a lay matron was overturned in favour of a religious sister who presumably had no qualifications for the job at all. Irrespective of the reforms put in place by Doyle, Erin, local government, the 1920s puts pressure everywhere for rationalisation and consolidation of hospitals. The Great War of 1914-18 leads to sharp rise in inflation, a sharp increase in taxation of capital and of the incomes of the rich. The value of endowments that had supported many charitable hospitals collapses, and this is not just in Ireland. Increasing medicalisation changes the whole economics of hospital size. Smaller hospitals cannot afford x-ray machines, anaesthetists, etc. 
uh, or provide blood transfusions. Hospitals now need proper electricity services, operating theatres, lab space and so forth. Financial pressures and tensions over the consolidation of long-established hospitals were not unique to Ireland, though some elements such as closing down local sources of employment seems to have been particularly fractious in Ireland, because jobs were highly prized and hotly contested, and the traditions of parish politics were well established by the 1920s. But if you look at Britain, for example, in the 20s and 30s up to World War II, many charitable hospitals... uh, closed down. Uh, Their traditional endowment has disappeared to become increasingly dependent on municipal funding um, and problems arise. Local philanthropy uh, withers away. Writing about Britain, Dorothy Porter notes that as middle-class philanthropic support eroded, voluntary hospitals become financially vulnerable. By the late 1930s, many of the large voluntary hospitals were only saved from bankruptcy through municipal subsidies. In other words, they fall under the control of the local authority, which cost them a degree of autonomy, bringing them under the control of the local health authorities. Each time a voluntary hospital went bankrupt, it was taken over by a municipal administration. So in Britain, you get to the voluntary hospitals through bankruptcy or threatened bankruptcy, falling under municipal control. And in turn, when the NHS comes in, these hospitals under municipal control go into the N- are put onto the NHS and they're consolidated, closed down, rationalised, expanded, or whatever needs to be done. But it's done within within a kind of a, a, a government plan, a state planned system. Uh, in France, you get similarly voluntary endowments, which means that the, the uh, which falling endowments, which means the voluntary hospitals again come under municipal control. Uh, the other thing you get in France is secularisation. The 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 bonser that had run so many of the hospitals no longer have sufficient nuns to run the hospitals, and they withdraw from the hospitals. The hospitals fall under municipal control, and again they lead themselves to consolidation to larger hospitals, rationalisation, and hospital systems put in place based on cities or localities, etc. At the time, Ireland has no shortage of nuns so the secularisation pressure doesn't apply. Uh, In Ireland, however, you might have expected financial pressures to do the job instead, particularly a consolidation of voluntary hospitals, particularly the hospitals that had traditionally relied on Protestant patronage because the years after independence uh, see uh, the departure of many members of the Anglo-Irish Protestant elite and a huge fall in the incomes of those that remained because their money in Ireland was generally landed money and that's not a good place to have had your money in the t- at the time. But the 1920s and 30s sees not the closure of hospitals or their merger or voluntary hospitals becoming municipal hospitals, rather the contrary. The difference in Ireland is, of course, a new f- source of funding, which is the Irish Hospital Sweepstake. It was originally designed to provide money for the Dublin voluntary hospitals. It was soon funding construction expansion of county hospitals and auxiliary services, which I'm not going to talk about today, such as mother and baby homes and TB hospitals. The income for the sweep grossly exceeded expectation. They were getting a million a year by 1931, and this is at a time when total public spending on all forms of public health and public assistance, in other words, uh, maintenance for the you know, the, the disabled, the ill and the incapacitated, as well as the whole health bill, is £3 million. So the money coming in for the hospital sweep is enormous. Think of kind of the, the bill for social welfare and everything today and see a source of uh, revenue through a sweepstake that is effectively one-third of the whole health and social protection budget combined. That's what you're talking about. It's phenomenal money. Almost immediately, the participating hospitals begin to indulge in what Sean McEntee, who was always good on profligate spending, described as haphazard expenditure. Lavish spending, capital expansion, they're all trying to maximise their take from this particular source of money. Nobody's thinking of the bigger overall picture. There's so much money around, you can throw it to everybody. The 1933 Public Hospitals Bill put spending from the hospital sweep under the control of the Department of Local Government and Public Health and it extended access to to this pot of gold from the voluntary hospitals to include the entire sector. Local authority hospitals can get it as well. The money would be allocated by the Hospitals Commission 
who soon said they wanted to use the money to develop a rational hospital structure for Dublin. They wanted four major hospitals, two on the north side, two on the south side of the city, instead of all these multiplicity of small hospitals, many of them within walking distance. Outside Dublin, there were proposals for modern county hospitals that would feed into regional centres. Yet this is an instance where lots of money probably prevented reform. Uh, The income from the hospital sweep actually protected hospital autonomy and postponed change and rationalisation because the Hospital Commission repeatedly met the deficits run up by the voluntary hospitals. In other words, it rewarded bad behaviour, do everything you liked, send the bill at the end of the year to the hospital sweep and they paid it off. And capital funding was likewise used to develop county hospitals without any effort to develop a coherent regional system. The unwillingness of the state to intrude too far into the voluntary hospitals, it's the whole church-state issue again, is an important part of the story. You don't tell them what. You don't tell the Sisters of Mercy what to do with their hospital. You don't tell the governors of the Meath Hospital what to do with their hospital. They're part of the voluntary sector. So that's that's an issue as well. But so much so is too much soft money. And political patronage, uh, great for any minister or TD to say new county hospital being built, new extension to the hospital and all those kind of things as well. Paradoxically, this is a case where less money might have promoted reform. If the capital funding for hospitals had been less less lavishly available, if Irish expectations read this money had been lower because lavish spending continues long after the golden age of the sweep had ended, Hospital construction might have brought about new beds and the closure of old beds. And that's what, what's happened in, what happened in the States. It was, it's what happens a lot in Britain. You build a new hospital, but you, you close down the old one or you turn it into some kind of long-term care. It's no longer operating, working as an acute hospital. It doesn't happen in Ireland. Between the start of the sweep and the end of 1947, almost seven million was spent on hospital construction, most of that money before 1940 because building materials dry up at the time. By the end of World War II, the voluntary hospitals are running annual deficits of 200,000 a year and the bill was picked up by the hospital trust. There's no evidence that anybody tried to get them to reduce the deficits and the deficits, there was no incentive to do so. Uh, the next year's sweep will provide. Prudent management suggested, and Marie Coleman has done this, has looked at this very effectively, um, that a capital reserve from the sweep should be built up to finance these deficits and the additional running costs of all the new hospitals and all the new beds that you're putting into place. But Noel Brown thought otherwise, and Noel Brown bragged about the fact that he took the capital reserve of the hospital sweep and blew it, and not only blew the capital reserve, but uh, the future income of the reserve for indefinable future. When Brown became Minister for Health in 1948, he found requests for 135 hospital building projects on his desk with a bill of 27 million. He reduced this to 15 million, which he was going to fund by running down all the money in the hospital trust, in other words, all the reserves. With high post war inflation, the cost of the schemes he approved had reached 26 million by the end of 1949. As Mary Coleman notes, and I'm drawing heavily on Coleman for this paragraph, Brown reassured officials that they need have no qualms about the necessary funds becoming available. So it was good news for all. In other words, spend and the money will appear somewhere or other. By 1952, the cost of his hospital schemes had risen to over £35 million. And as Coleman shows, by 1952, they're not only just spending all the income of the hospital trust and all the reserve, they're actually in the red on the hospital trust. The government starts subsidising the hospital trust funds and it's been spent, which is the ultimate, you know, contradictory illogicality. Spending continues at pace as if the sweep would continue to lay golden eggs and there's no effort made to impose a rational, sustainable model on the hospital service. I mean, one of the insights into the shape or the lack of shape, and that's why I want to drop the word hospital system, is that at no stage did the Department of Health or MDS give you a consolidated table where you can see the total number of beds in Ireland, the total number of admissions, the total number of anything. You get table A, which does voluntary hospitals, and table B, which does county hospitals, and they never meet. So they don't even see it as a sector at all. In the event, hospital construction in the post-war period provided too many beds and not necessarily in the correct place. 
Between 1949 and 1956, there were 4,000 TB beds, 2.5,000 general medical and surgical beds, and then lesser numbers of maternity, orthopaedic and children's hospital beds provided. And specialist medical services such as paediatrics, obstetrics, pathology and radiology were extended nationally and into provincial hospitals. These beds are added to the system without any serious effort being made to close down existing beds. As I said, the Dublin voluntary hospitals, many within walking distance of each other in the city centre, survives largely unchanged. So too do the voluntary hospitals in Cork and Limerick. County hospitals expand and duplicated services such as obstetrics and paediatrics. In other words, you're putting in additional maternity beds, but there's maternity going in also to the general county hospital. You're, putting, you're, building, you're building a new children's hospital in Cromlin, but all the general hospitals start, start offering paediatric services as well, except I'll come to qualification of that in a moment. A key component in the Brown Hospital programme was the provision of sufficient beds in dedicated TB hospitals to meet the Irish epidemic. But even before many of these hospitals left the drawing board, the emergence of an effective chemotherapy, streptomycin, was transforming the treatment of TB. Given that the availability and effectiveness of drug treatment was well established by the early 1950s, it's not clear that an additional 4,000 beds in TB hospitals should have been planned. More importantly, given the delay between planning and construction, there was ample opportunity to call halt when it became obvious that the nature of the disease and the treatment was changing, but nobody called halt. It'd be interesting actually to look at the duration of hospital stay for Irish TB patients in the 50s compared with elsewhere. But let me give you some examples from County Galway about overcapacity for, for the, no actually Galway City, for overcapacity for TB treatment. In Galway, the Hospital Trust funded the construction of operating theatres at Woodlands, which was a TB hospital that dated from the 1920s. They're just on the outskirts of Galway City. And those operating theatres were used to treat tubercular orthopaedic patients from 1952. That's when they were completed. Uh, yet, in 1952, you get the opening of Merlin Park. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's only a few minutes away. A, a modern TB hospital. And it's already obvious in 1952 that there's going to be an excess of TB beds and orthopaedic TB beds in Galway. But Murray, uh, who's written a good study of this uh, on uh, health services in Galway, says that though it's evident by now that the new drugs had dramatically shortened the duration of the inpatient treatment for all forms of tuberculosis, and there were already empty beds in the ward blocks completed. So you build a new hospital and there are empty beds in that new hospital. Administrative inertia permitted the construction to continue. So you keep expanding Merlin Park even though there are empty beds in the newly constructed wards in the hospital. Um, and a additional, the hospital isn't completely open until 1954, by which time most of the additional beds were definitely not needed at all. By 1958, because there's so much overcapacity, all orthopaedic cases in Galway, which would have included effectively a lot of them from the west of Ireland, had moved into two unused ward blocks at Merlin Park. Um, the Merlin Park was not built as an orthopaedic hospital. They had to do something with it. By 1961, they're, having to, they're using something like a one-third of the beds in the hospital for long-term geriatric care. So here's a TB hospital. Some of it never occupied by TB patients, too many beds, uh, and evident that there's too many beds even before the final phase of the hospital are built. Are built. Long-term geriatric care uh, occupied many underused beds in what were planned as acute hospitals. There were undoubtedly many other examples of excess spending on hospitals and medical and surgical facilities during these years. For example, one of the things I need to check is how many years was the Blanchardstown Regional Sanatorium, now James Connolly Hospital, actually used to treat TB. And while it was converted into a general hospital, you could argue that many features of that such as the dispersed pavilions, which were appropriate for TB patients, were less than ideal for running a general hospital. There are other systemic shortcomings within the sector, and I need to do more work on this, uh, and uh, this is one of the areas where I need to fill in detail. There might have been plenty of beds in county hospitals, but they lacked pretty well everything else. In particular, they lacked medical professionals to provide a modern service, and they were too small to justify specialist appointments. The typical county hospital, the cornerstone of the service outside the major cities, began life with one resident uh, medic, the, con the, a, the consultant surgeon and little else. In time, they got a consultant physician and they carried the titles of county surgeon and county physician. 
Radiologists and anaesthetists were part-time appointments who moved from hospital to hospital, going maybe one day a week there. And there was no resident pathologist. The surgeon did obstetrics on the side and gynae cases. Hospitals often admitted children. If children were admitted, they were either seen by the general surgeon or the physician, or they waited for the weekly visit by the paediatrician. Connor Ward has described before he went to Crumlin coming over from Liverpool eh, on a Friday night and on a Saturday visiting two or three county hospitals to see the paediatric patients. Now, those children would, might come in the previous Monday. They would have waited until he came on the Saturday. He didn't get to all the hospitals every week. They might have waited two weeks to be seen. And meanwhile, they either got better or in many cases, I don't know what happened to them. Most hospitals had inadequate laboratories and radiological facilities and inadequate uh, operating theatres, which meant the patients had to remain in hospital longer than necessary. In other words, you had to wait for the weekly or bi-weekly visit by the radiologist, the weekly visit by the anaesthetist, or for the lab tests to be done and shipped off to Galway, Cork or Dublin and to come back. So it's no great mystery why you spent a long time in hospital. Things were done in a rather leisurely inefficient manner. A further complication is the coexistence of these two separate hospital systems, the local authority hospitals and the voluntary hospitals, who did not have to cooperate on services or patient treatment and often failed to do so. The Fitzgerald report spoke of a tendency to reduplicate services excessively. In other words, you might have services in a voluntary hospital, you pretty well duplicated the services in a local authority hospital as well. Successive lobbying or pleading invariably brought approval for a new lab, a new X-ray machine, even though there was underused capacity in another hospital five minutes away. And the supreme irony is that the fund that was supposed to drive change, the hospital trust, was actually instrumental in preventing it because the hospital sweep continued to finance the deficits of the voluntary hospitals while funding construction and expansion of local authority hospitals, though increasingly it was making commitments that it couldn't honour financially without getting the money from the exchequer. J.B. Lyons, in his history of Dublin's Mercer Hospital, notes that during the 1950s, the hospital governors were accustomed to being heavily in debt to the bank, with the tacit assurance that sooner or later the Hospital Commission and Department of Health would reduce the deficit. A comfortable situation, perhaps, enabling them to face sparring costs with equanimity and pay undue attention to demands from trade unions. The system of deficit budgeting was surely a betrayal of economics. The annual deficit on voluntary hospitals doubled between 1954 to 1958, from 650,000 to almost 1.2,000, and this is at a time of huge economic crisis. Public spending on everything has been cut. By the late 1960s, the voluntary hospitals were running a combined annual deficit of 5 million, which was underwritten annually by the Hospital Commission. But the end was nigh. By the 1960s, falling revenue from the hospital sweep was beginning to drive change. A key moment for Dublin Bondi Hospitals appears to have been the refusal of the Department of Health to, appo- to approve the construction of a pathology lab at Mercer's Hospital. I think it's about 1960. I need to check that. In the late 1950s, the seven voluntary, hospi- seven voluntary hospitals in Dublin began to talk about a merger, and in 1961, legislation was passed creating a central council that could, would control all capital spending ac- across what comes to be known as the Federated Hospitals and all future appointments to the medical staff. One of the earliest initiatives was a centralised pathology service across the seven hospitals. The Federation enabled these small hospitals to get access to sophisticated diagnostic procedures, but the doctors there and the staff bitterly resented this uh, modern uh, development. Lyons noted that the centralisation of pathology, pathology services improved the diagnostic services immeasurably, but clinicians rather regretted they were no longer able to drop into the lab to discuss the test with the pathologist. In other words, you you lost the personal touch, the domestic nature of the medical treatment. Uh, But uh, this, in effect, is decades after something like that happened in other health systems. The Fitzgerald Report, uh, and I'm coming close to the end now, it described the existing hospital structure as outmoded and a hindrance to good medicine. They were insistent that the requirements of a modern hospital service have become so complex they can only be met by a radical reorganisation of our system involving inter alia considerable reduction in the number of centres providing acute treatment. And can I say Fitzgerald Commission was almost all doctors, which means it's quite interesting. Um, This section in the report was apparently controversial. 
According to Hibernia, an earlier version of the report uh, was reluctant to examine the reasons for the large number of hospital beds and didn't put it in, and somebody sent them back to rewrite it uh, in the report. There's nothing to suggest, by the way, that this health service was particularly good service. Life expectancy in Ireland at this time was not particularly good, and outcomes for a lot of, uh, lot of conditions was not, was, was not particularly promising. The 1970 Health Act proposed to transform the hospital service by integrating the voluntary and local authority hospitals in a rational fashion, creating modern, regionally-based services. I haven't gone beyond that, but they were very close, slow to close hospitals down, I can say that much. However, the 1970 Act also perpetuated what I would see as the systemic bias of state funding in favour of the hospital sector, because it continued, albeit in a new form, the two-tier health system. Without patient GP care, etc., free only for the poorest 30% or so of the population, roughly the same percentage is under the old dispensary system, and the remainder of the population required to, um, to pay their GP and related costs. But most of that remainder of the population having access to very cheap, heavily subsidised hospital care. By the 1970s, Irish general elections are already producing hospital candidates. Um, Brian Lennon, father the, of, of the former Minister of Finance, lost his seat in Roscommon because he, was, he made noises about rationalising Roscommon Hospital at the time. Medical politics, which was not new to Ireland, was flourishing at the time. County surgeons and county physicians defended their general role against demands for subspecialism. County hospitals continued to press for additional resources, complaining at the decision to prioritise hospital construction in Cork and Dublin, which actually didn't happen. And as evidence of this, let me quote a 1973 article, it's in the Irish Medical Times. What hospital in Dublin has ever had up to 5% of its patients accommodated on stretchers on the floor? Accommodation, staffing and facilities in general in county hospitals lag very much behind those in Dublin and the state has a duty to remedy these defects urgently. And if if you can interpret this for me, I'd be grateful. We are all Jock Tamsin's bairns. Um, Now, I find this statement incredible. It comes from the county surgeon in Wexford. This is the county hospital that the Fitzgerald report showed as having a bed occupancy of less than 70% and an average stay of patient which is well above the national average but I don't know, he's convinced that they're under, under, deprived and under-resourced. So let me conclude um, what I'm really saying is that history matters, history of medicine matters, contemporary controversy over hospital location, hospital service, the strong focus on the hospital to the neglect of other elements of health services doesn't begin with the establishment of the HSE. It's deeply embedded in the Irish medical market and Irish medical culture. So on that note, I'll leave you.